Welcome to the Good Growing Podcast. I am Chris Enroth, horticulture educator with University of Illinois Extension, coming at you from Macomb, Illinois. And folks, we have got quite a fun-filled Gobble Gobble show for you today. We are coming at you here. It's about to be Thanksgiving, so uh, we want to talk turkey. And we have local foods educator James Thury with us today. But before we get to James, we got to introduce our hosts, our fearless hosts. They are with us every single week. Katie Parker, a local foods educator in Adams County. Hello, Katie. Hi, Chris. How's it going? Where you uh, are? Can't complain here in the basement. Um, it's getting colder, but at least the sun is now farther south in the sky so our southern windows are getting a lot more sunlight so that's a good thing yeah that is a positive it's nice to wake up too and it's uh light out i do like that i am a, i'm kind of a get up with the sun person and when the time changed i was up like man i, I was up before the world was and it was wonderful so how are you doing katie in, in adams county there i'm doing pretty well uh, like you said, it's a chilly morning, but it looks like we're supposed to warm up this week, which is exciting. Um, it can't get as many projects done in the evening with it getting dark so early, but, you know, just got to get up earlier, I guess, and get it done before work. <laughs> That's true. I, I was processing ginger yesterday, and I ran out of sunlight, and so I had to I had to go inside, and it was getting cold, so, yes. Is that in your backyard? Um, I, I was doing it in my backyard, but we pulled it. Uh, it's a project I'm working on with uh, Dr. Henning at WIU. So we're we're testing ginger to see how it grows here in the Midwest. Awesome. Yeah. And also, let's introduce our other co-hosts here. We have Ken Johnson in Jacksonville, Illinois. Ken's a horticulture educator. Um, and as, as you might have guessed, folks, we have our videos on today. Um, I'm the guy with the brown beard. Ken's the one with the red beard. Uh, hello, Ken. <laughs> Hello, Chris and Katie. How are you I'm doing? I'm glad you made that distinction between us. <laughs> <laughs> I am doing good. I'm... Oh, go ahead. So I'm enjoying this colder weather. The beard's coming in handy now. It does. Are those your pirate names? Red beard and red beard. Red beard. <laughs> it's good. It's a, a little bit of gray in here, too. So soon it'll be gray beard. I find I find the occasional white hair, so mm -hmm. the sanctification process has begun. <laughs> <laughs> well, Ken, Katie, Thanksgiving is coming up, so I wanted to ask in such a, it's been kind of an off year, um, and uh, Katie uh, forwarded us an article about kind of what turkey growers are expecting. You know, they're not quite sure. Uh, we're going to have smaller smaller gatherings this year due to uh, the COVID-19 uh, environment that we're living in. So, you know, they're not sure. Are they going to be selling more turkeys, bigger turkeys, smaller turkeys, less turkeys? Uh, you know, Ken, what are your plans for the Thanksgiving week? Uh, I think we're leaning towards probably just staying home, doing our own thing with the kids. Uh, normally we go up to my mom's and I've got four brothers and sisters, so we end up having a pretty big Thanksgiving at my mom's. But this year we'll probably stay at home and, and do our own thing given COVID and, and all that. So. Yeah, we're in the same boat. Normally, it is a gathering at moms and dads, and uh, but not this year. So our my parents said, everyone, me and my other two sisters, we all have our own group of five. I have five. Other sister has five. The other one has six. She says, you guys stay in your pods and stay at home. So, yeah. Katie, what are your plans for uh, Thanksgiving week? 
We're going to carry on with our normal traditions. Um, all of our elders have passed away, so we don't really necessarily have the worry of getting them sick. Uh, and most of us work from home, and so that's a, something that we have going for us if we were to get sick and we've been quarantining pretty much uh, the entire COVID. So we're going to carry on. So, Katie, is turkey a centerpiece at your Thanksgiving meal? It actually isn't. Um, so we aren't going to affect the turkey consumption. We're uh, a ham family. We have ham for Thanksgiving, Christmas, uh, which the pork industry has been hit pretty hard this year, too. So uh, we'll we'll. Uh, consume that ham and help them out. There you go. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> How about you, Ken? Are you going to be having turkey at your house this year? Okay. We are. We are a turkey family, so we'll do. Usually, we'll do a, one in the oven, then we'll do a deep fry one. So we we'll get one of the fryers, which is fun. Sit out there for an hour or so and watch it mm -hmm. <laughs> cook in oil. So that's the same plan we have. So we're gonna. I kind of want to get two small turkeys because I don't think we're going to eat two big ones. So I want to brine one and then put that in the oven, and then we're going to deep fry a second one. So that's that's our plan this year. We always have our, our fire extinguisher with us just in case things go sideways. Exactly. Don't put a <laughs> frozen a turkey plan. in oil. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> Well, we're talking turkey. We better bring in our uh, turkey guru here. We have James Thury. James is a local food small farms educator. Uh, James, you're located up in Kankakee County. Is that correct? That is correct, yes. Well, James, tell me, are, are you planning on having uh, a Thanksgiving meal this year uh, as we're talking turkey? What are your plans? I would have liked to, but I'm not going to because I'm not going to be in the country November 22nd. I'll be out of the country on vacation. I'm going to my home country, well, where I was born, in Kenya, which is in East Africa. So um, we'll have a different type of Thanksgiving there. My mother is 87 now, and I'll gather family, my brother and sisters, and we'll give our mom a surprise party of sorts. So that will be my Thanksgiving out of the country that sounds wonderful though so well uh, safe travels on your way to to kenya i know now is kind of a tumultuous uh, time travel so the, it is yes it is. be safe yes. and we look forward to when you you come back back in the states and we can we can talk more about turkey or or otherwise yes my <laughs> name is james theory if you want to pronounce that name theory that's still fine that's okay I'm not practical, I'm theoretical theory. Okay. okay, so that will help you out with the pronunciation. James Theory. And like I just said, I'm a native of Kenya and I came to this country 30 years ago. I, my background is in biology um, and I came to the United States to go to school and I went to Missouri University, so I'm a Missouri Tiger. And I'm sure by now you've detected my accent is Missourian, right? Of course, I don't yes. Have to tell you that. Okay, all right, <laughs> very well. So um, when there I did my PhD, well, I did my BS in Nairobi, which is a capital city in Kenya. I went to University of Reading in, well, it's in, it's in UK, United Kingdom, Britain. And then I came here for my doctorate in crop protection throughout. So I'm a plant pathologist in my background. However, 
In my growing life, I have raised chickens and I have been very successful at it because very few die. And in fact, as we talk, I have five chickens in the backyard here. One died yesterday, not because I didn't take care of it, but I don't know why this particular egg was so huge. When it was laying the egg, the insides came out. It had a huge prolapse. I felt very touched by that slow death that it went through. But otherwise, I rejoined the University of Missouri when I did my doctorate in plant pathology and and did a postdoctoral uh, session there on molecular in molecular biology, corn genetics, and. Okay, it's so nice when you get good results and you get enough results to publish a paper. But that takes long and it is boring and science is very boring. <laughs> it's we are there just for the love of it, for you know, a knowledge, pursuit of knowledge. And then I thought, you know what? Instead of dealing with uh, my microorganisms, how about I deal with macroorganisms? And I decided, you know, well, let me go into extension. I did, I had a little bit of education uh, uh, training in my background, so I thought if I come and teach the little I know in agriculture, the little I know in crop production, um, that would be a nice change. And yes, I like dealing with people. I like to talk to people, see their, their reaction, their interaction. Uh, I love that. And when they walk up to me and say, hey, you told me two new things, I'm like, well, I, I feel satisfied. So the results and the satisfaction is immediate as opposed to doing research for two years and one year before you get a good enough data to publish a paper. That's what brought me into extension. And with my plant background in extension is supposed to know everything. Now I'm into programs that have to deal with rabbits of all things. Although I made a mistake of offering a rabbit program near Easter time and I was like <laughs> no wonder people didn't sign. You can you can't do that around Easter time. So but I do rabbits, I do sheep and goats, I do poultry, but mainly chickens. And then I I do deal with grazers, people that uh, raise dairy cattle or beef cattle. But there I'm not, I don't have an animal science background. But when it comes to growing the pasture, you know, the choice of grasses, when to, to, when to, to seed them and how to take care of the grass, the weeds that go in there, and I've gotten a few things now about pasture management that I didn't know before. And they also apply to poultry, chickens. And I like to say poultry and chickens because when I say poultry, some people think I'm saying poetry, you know? <laughs> you gotta hang around me for a while before you get to know this Missourian accent, probably. Yes. <laughs> Such a thick southern Missouri accent. <laughs> so, but uh, thank you for inviting me. Um, I know you called me a guru. If I cannot answer all the questions, you bear with me and I'll do my best. 
certainly. Uh, Thank you. We're so happy that you're here on the show with us today. Um, James, I'm curious, you know, when I think about turkeys and Thanksgiving, I kind of feel like it's similar to how the green industry grows poinsettias, because that's kind of my background in, um, you know, how greenhouses, they they grow these poinsettias, which is the plant, I think it's like their number one selling plant. Yes. They make a lot of their, most of their money off of selling poinsettias, but it happens one month a year, maybe just like a few weeks out of the year. Is that the same thing with growing turkeys? Are most of these growers just selling the majority of turkeys like right before Thanksgiving? To a large extent, yes. Maybe 80%, yes. And the the other 20 or 10%, no, because there are people who really, really value the meat from these turkeys. I mean, there are people you can't just give them any other type of meat. They want just that one. But yes, to a large extent, we grow them, or those who grow them hoping to make some little money, do it for the thanksgiving element and that also cuts across the board because if you target the muslim ramadan holiday you then you've got to raise your sheep and goats at the right time just for that occasion but back to the turkeys they are very they have they are of seasonal benefit and i would answer your question saying yeah to a large extent they are really very seasonal. You gave that nice example of poinsettias there. They're just like that. So how long does it take to grow a turkey? When were these, are, are they called chicks, uh, the baby turkey? Poults, poults, P-O-U-L-T-S, poults. Okay, when do they start? And then uh, the thing is, um, you know, the best extension, in uh, the best answer in extension is two words. It depends. That's right. <laughs> All right. <laughs> so how long do you grow them? It really depends. Mm-hmm. One, on the heritage. Uh, is it, I'm, I'm sorry. Yeah. So if it is a, a land race or what we call breeds that have been in, in the U.S. forever. And by now, I think everybody should know that this is an American bird. So if you're getting some of those heritage birds, they grow slower but their meat is so flavorful some people just don't mind the slowness on the other hand if you are commercial or if you are growing it for yourself and you want one great big huge bird then it will take longer so it can take anywhere from 16 weeks to 22 weeks so we're talking five let's let's say five and a half months plus or minus depending on even your management matters, of course. We are already assuming that you're doing a great job feeding them when they should be fed, cleaning the coop and making sure there are no diseases, all those good things. If you're doing all that, all things considered good, then five and a half months, so it could be six, could be four even. So it all depends on the management and the breed. And if we have time, we can go into some of the breeds. Yeah, I'm curious, James. So how far apart are the majority of heritage that we consume related to our wild turkey that you can find out in, you know, in the farm fields right now and backyards? 
When I came to the United States 30 years ago, we used to buy a 10 pounder for a dollar a pound. Right now it's four, three, four dollars. So the same bird goes for 30 to 40 dollars. That's kind of so much. But the point I want to make is this. If somebody were to grow the heritage ones only, first of all, they're slow growing and they don't gain as much weight, then they would have to sell them way much more because they want to recover their money and they have that extra value. They don't have, they still have their original geno, genotype in them. And people value it when they get heritage. And you're familiar with uh, the heirloom tomatoes. People, people value those for their flavor and all those things. And the heritage breeds have those beautiful flavors. So they have extra value. That's the point I want to make. And they would have to cost way much more. So when it comes to the commercial aspect, if I was commercial, I want the faster growing uh, turkeys, the breeds that will grow faster and gain more weight because then it will be per pound and I want them to mature quicker. So it's, it's, it's all over the place. I mean, there's more of the commercial breeds than the heritage breeds, for, for sure. Except for backyard, home, those who want to keep in the backyards. If I was to keep them, let me talk about myself, I would go for the heritage breed just because of the, one, it's not such a huge thing. And secondly, it's more flavorful. And third, they have better instincts at life. They know how to run away from a predator. They know how to uh, forage. Those are great qualities in some of these meat birds that, that we raise. So I, I'm also a, not very, but a little bit more familiar with chickens. And, you know, I'm trying to compare chickens with turkeys here. Uh, with chickens, you have the Cornish cross, and that's kind of a mutant-looking bird. It's got, like, these big breasts and... Um, it's it's a little bit of an ugly bird. Is that the 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 turkey growers have their own like big meat producing breeds? Actually, they do. And you know what its name is? Broad breasted white. Just I mean, and <laughs> so it's so commercial. When I'm growing commercially, I want a huge thing because I'm going to sell it to you per pound. I want to make more money. I don't care about the quality. I'm caring about the quantity at this point in time. The broad-breasted white is the largest and the fastest growing of the turkey uh, breeds. And it is great for confinement. So if you're going to grow them indoors, they're just happy with that. They're okay with that. And with the tom, which is the male, you can get it up to 36 pounds. If you are going to get it to 36 pounds and then you sell it at even $3 per pound, you're asking for $100 for that bird. The hens, the, the females, uh, get to 20 pounds. Again, that's the other thing. If you want to be, not have those huge big birds in your backyard, go for the hens. They, has, they have smaller bodies compared to the toms, the males. So yeah, there's a huge big one uh, in, the, in, the, in the turkey world which rivals the, 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 the Cornish crow.
which which and I agree with you. I don't like. I do not like. Yeah. Because. And isn't it? It's got quantity and not quality, mm-hmm. in my opinion. Now that's my opinion. And isn't it some of these larger ones you have to artificially inseminate them? They're too big to breed, on their own. I should have gotten to the third advantage of the heritage breeds. They breed themselves. With the commercial ones, you gotta artific- if you're going to keep your breeding stock, you got to artificially inseminate them. And the heritage breeds turn out to be excellent mothers. So they can raise themselves completely without you having to get involved. Good point. Okay. So speaking of uh, heritage breeds being able to like run away from a predator, you know, with chickens, everything wants to eat a chicken. Can turkeys defend themselves, or is are they a little bit more resilient to a lot of the things that want to eat ground birds, or in this case, turkeys? You know, one of the questions that you submitted was about predation, and uh, somebody right. somebody talked about losing their birds uh, to predators, and I could see why that happened because they were in the open. They were tiny, they were easy pick for any predator. And like I said, they do not have the instinct, especially the the ones that have been bred or commercial breeds. They do not have the instinct to run away from predators, as opposed to the heritage breeds or the ones that are wild, uh, that, you know, the wild related ones. So you got to come up with housing that actually completely is predator proof and i know there was an extra question there they made it predator proof against the birds that of prey but they still lost uh, their their turkeys to something else i would comb that structure the housing structure with a tooth comb because even a small opening as tiny as that a few inches wide, we'll let in a weasel. And that will go and mess those birds pretty bad. So before they are really huge and big, I would want to make sure that I protect them 100% from anything that could get in there. And so my suspicion, in fact, now I'm answering that question, so to speak, my suspicion is that there is a hole somewhere, some entry somewhere which you can't see that some weasel or some other small creature there has... First of all, you know, raccoons are so clever. They are the cleverest of those small creatures. They'll find a little hole somewhere, and it could be up there, it could be down on the ground, it could be anywhere. So comb that structure with a tooth comb and find whether there's any entry hole somewhere. That would be my answer to your question there. There have been... Well, some people have said that turkeys are very stupid animals, and they are really not that stupid. They they have nice personalities. They 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 cannot they can bond with people very nicely. The one thing you can do, though, you can bring in the feed. It's in a bucket, and say you know you got to do something else while you come and pour it in their feeding troughs or whatever. The moment one jumps in into the bucket, the others will all jump in. What will happen to the ones that jumped in the beginning? They'll be, you know, they'll be trampled on. So don't do things like those. You are the one who induced them to do that. Just don't let them do something like that. So let's say maybe uh, next year we have the goal of growing our own Thanksgiving turkey. And you had mentioned 
you know, if you were doing this, you would go with heritage breeds. Is this something, it, it, someone with maybe a little bit of uh, poultry raising knowledge could do on their own? Absolutely. Like I said, you give them the tender loving care. Um, as long as you make sure you calculate that each bird will have like three to four square feet of space, you be you should be fine because then there should be not there should not be much stress. When you have too many of them in very small space, they start pecking on each other, and the moment one produces blood, everybody wants that blood. There's iron in there; it's tasty and good. So that pecking can be stopped if you have enough space, so that even if there's one that is the alpha or the omega, male or female, and wants to peck others, they have somewhere else to run to, as opposed to when they are really crowded. If you have some yardage, some room behind there, just make sure you don't have too many in there. Make sure you have nice cage, nice confinement. And if it is the heritage ones, you can release them out in the, you know, in the lawn or in the grass or in the garden when it is not in production. And look after them and take care of them. Um, hard them. Just make sure that you don't have any of the predators coming, whether it's a dog or a cat or a, or a wild uh, critter, any of those animals. So it's it's pretty easy to take care of them. And as long as you, the, the biggest care, first of all, has to be when you receive the one-day-old or two-day-old poults. A lot of people, even with chickens, I have had somebody call me, oh, I, my 56 uh, chicks came, and within, within five hours of receiving them, half of them died. I told her she was the one that was a problem. These chicks have been um, traveling for the last two days. They are thirsty. They have been rocked all over the place. It's been a stressful experience. As soon as you receive them, give them water. That has to happen without any question. Secondly, have yourself pre be prepared two or three days before a nice little section that we call a brooder, which you are all familiar with, where there is wood shavings or something else on the floor. It's not cold, it's not concrete. Um, have water ready, have food ready, have heating ready. You've got to give them tender loving care. That has to be, you have to have 95 degrees Fahrenheit of heat going through. And you probably will not lose that many. We say we can tolerate up to 10% loss. When you call me and say 56 chicks, half of them are dead, that is not acceptable and it is really your mistake. So um, tender loving care in the beginning and proper feeding and making sure they have been vaccinated against coccidiosis and other. If, if for instance, fowl pox is prevalent in your area, you, you, you prevent, you protect them against that, then you have a good beginning and you shouldn't lose that many chicks and they should go on to maturity uh, as you want them to. If they are for breeding, then they'll be ready in six months to start breeding. 
if they are for, for, for meat, anything between four and six, six, six months, I'm sorry, I hope I didn't say six weeks, four to six months. So are there some more breeds that are, if a homeowner was going to do this, what kind of breeds would they want to look at, kind of the heritage? Are there any that kind of work better than others? Yes, absolutely. So we've kind of said, unless you are a commercial grower, don't go with a broad-breasted white. You may want to go with a bourbon, bourbon red. It's probably got feathers that look like your beard, Ken. And they are, they are liked for that color. <laughs> and the goodness with those is you can raise them in confinement. You can do pasture confinement and pasture outside. All you can do it on pasture entirely. And when I say on pasture, that doesn't mean you're not going to buy feed. You still give them feed, but then let them graze. Let them find grass. They actually eat grass. Uh, Poultry eats grass, but it cannot digest grass. But the juices coming out of grass, the chlorophyll and all that, offer a few more vitamins and goodies. It also is roughage for the digestive system. So you still have to give them feed out there, or give them feed in the housing so they eat and then go out and pick up the occasional cricket and grasshopper and worm. That's why the meat, by the way, or pastured poultry, whether it's chickens or turkey or whatever, or, or ducks, tastes better because they have all these extra ingredients coming into their flesh, their meat. So that would be uh, one, the bourbon red, and then although it's still called medium size, it still goes to 33 pounds for the tom and 18 for the, for the hen, the, the female. There's, then there's the bronze one, which is supposed to be strong and hardy, great for backyards, particularly this one, but it's a big one again, 36 pounds for the male and 20 for the, for the hen. And there are two types of species underneath this one, the heritage one, and that's where the broad-breasted white came from. So if you're not going with the broad-breasted white, go with one of its parents, which is the bronze parent, and it will give you um, uh, the raising of this will, will also be good. And it is okay in confinement or both confinement and partial outdoors, okay? The royal palm, P-A-L-M, royal palm, is great for the backyard. Now this one, the, the the male goes to 16 pounds and the female to 10 pounds. So again, if it's your desire to have the smaller bird, this is a good one. It is smaller for a start and it is slower maturing because it's a heritage bird. It's an excellent forager. It can fed for itself out there. If it goes out there to look for its own food, it can fly and roost. Now, flying is of advantage because if a hawk is, is swooping down on it, it can jump in the air and kind of fly a little bit, and the, and the hawk misses it. So it's much better for protection of itself. Again, it's predators. And then, yeah, you can do it outside, a uh, patio, outdoors, 
or on pasture. So again, that's really a good one. The royal palm, when your backyard grower, that's a, probably a really good one. And myself, I would like it because I don't want a huge, big bird. I want something, I mean, 16 pounds isn't still small. It's still a big, big thing. And then there's the slate, S-L-A-T-E. The slate is like the, the bob on red goes to 33 pounds and 18 pounds. 33, of course, the male, 18 for the female. It has robust immunity. So there are two diseases we probably will get into in a little while. But it has immunity to those two diseases. It has hardiness. It can survive in uh, changing conditions. I should also have said that <clears throat> the poles react very badly sometimes to changing temperature, changing uh, wind speeds, uh, changing dampness. They don't react very well to that. So, but this one, the slate, is great at adapting quickly to any changes like those in weather, um, in weather and, and environmental conditions. And they are very flavorful as well, the slates. And the goodness with them, you can raise them on pasture, you can raise them outdoors or in partial confinement. That's another good thing about them. So that's, that's the breeds that I have uh, in mind. I'm sure there might be others, but those are some of the breeds that they are for choice from homeowners. Would you say is it easier to hatch your own uh, poults or to buy poults and raise them from there? Both are easy. Let me put it that way. Uh, by getting, because I've, 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 I've gotten involved with one homeowner who actually bought a, um, what do you call it, incubator, the incubator. Yes, if you can get those eggs, um, now if you have your male and female turkeys and you just collect your eggs and keep them, you can always brood those or you can always incubate those. And my friend did get a very good count out of like 20 eggs. I think he had 15 or 16. That was a good return rate. So um, there are the four that didn't hatch were probably never fertilized. So you can brood your own. So hoping that you get a good return rate, that should be okay. The bad, the, the bad thing is you put in 20 eggs there and you you're aiming at, at the very least to have 10, and then you get four. Now, you wasted your time. So by buying, of course, you let somebody else do the job. That's what, that's the advantage of buying from somebody else. You just get prepared and then let the other person sell you after they've done the brooding and, and the, the incubation and send them to you. Obviously, then the choice of breed that you may want may not be the one available or the one you're getting. So again, if you want to have your own particular breed and you have the male and female, you're more assured of keeping the genotype that you want. So there are advantages and disadvantages of either option. 
that's that would be my answer. Or should I have said that it depends? <laughs> <laughs> the good old extension answer, yes. Yes, the best extension answer. <laughs> I'm curious, James. Um, you mentioned diseases. I, I want to. I'm like, I want to know what are the diseases to look out for, and also like at my parents' farm, they have a wild turkey flock that I mean they've they've had it there for years. Is there any risk of diseases spreading from wild turkey into um, uh, you know pasture turkey? Maybe not. That's that's my gut feeling. But let me address this question first of all by saying when you raise, say, meat birds, the meat, uh, the turkey meat for meat, um, keep the the different birds separate. Keep them separate. After four months, you want to keep them separate for one reason. The males are huge. They'll be dominating the females so much. That's one. Two, for those of us that are males, you know what we'll start doing all over the place, trying to create a harem out of the females that are there. We'll be fighting. So again, you don't want us to be fighting over there. Keep them separate again for that particular reason. The other reason is they are growing at a different rates. The females and males are growing. You know, the males are gaining lots of weight. They are growing at a faster rate. So they'll need to eat more than the females. So we may, again, now start feeding them differently, you know, in, the, in terms of amounts. And then you might want to start selling your birds at different ages again. So again, another reason to separate them. And if, of, of course, if you have any injuries, get the injured bird or even the pecked bird. Once it starts bleeding, get it out of there because it will now become the target of everybody else or it will become overwhelmed by the others if it has got some injury. Quarantine it somewhere, isolate it somewhere. Having said that, chickens or uh, ordinary chickens do have some diseases and in those the, the infection is latent. In other words, you cannot see symptoms. They are symptomless with those two um, diseases. Um, the sinusitis, sinusitis, you can see there's sinuses in there, sinus, sinusitis and blackhead diseases. The sinusitis is caused by a bacterial-like organism, which is called mycoplasma, which is a mycoplasma. Mycoplasmas are bacterial-like. And the blackhead is caused by a protozoan, single-celled organism, histomonas, which affects the gastrointestinal tract as well as the liver. So the chickens are carriers of these two pathogens, disease-causing organisms. And if these get into the turkey, that is not good. So keep them separate. Having said that, I, my friend Steve, kept these animals together all the time. He didn't see any diseases, but he had masses of room for these animals to roam. They would roost in the same building, okay. But then he had a yard that is a whole half acre or whatever for them to roam around. So. I guess that freedom kept them without conf confining too much, except at night. So, but the recommendation is if you can 
um, what's the word? Divide your coop into two and have your turkeys on one side and the chickens on the other if you are keeping both of them and kind of have a barrier in between because these mycoplasmas and protozoans can probably go in uh, water vapor. So uh, keep them separate somehow. And so to answer your question, I do not think the wild ones will bring any diseases to the commercial ones. Um, uh, I don't. I don't think so. Any other anything else, James, to cover in terms of uh, turkey production processing? Oh yes. I mean, <laughs> this we could talk a whole day. We I talking... got. I've got a. I've got all day. So yeah. At least till <laughs> lunchtime. So again, walk your birds every day. That's what we tell anybody with any animals. Okay, not just an animals include us. I think I heard you talking about your kids. You walk them every day. You watch them every day. You you know you say hey, hey uh, Ken, what's uh, if you have a kid called Ken? I have one. They say what's the matter today? Why are you not in a good mood? Why you just woke up and all that? You do walk your kids every day. Walk your chickens and your turkeys and your goats and your sheep and your cows every day because the sooner you catch, well, if I had caught this hen yesterday that was laying and was having that difficult plow, it was having a prolapse. The whole of the, its abdomen was coming out with the egg. It got stuck. I don't know how that happened. If I probably had seen that way earlier because I saw that when I woke up, I probably would have tried to push back the egg and help it out. But now, when I went there, it was lying down, it was half dead. Too late to do anything. So, check your animals every day. If you see them scratching too much, because you can always tell this chicken is, or this turkey is spending too much time uh, checking its... It, it, they do check their feathers occasionally. That's, that's normal. But if it is spending 20, 30 minutes scratching all the time, it probably got lice and mites. If you think that's what it is and you talk to somebody in extension, get the proper treatment for that because that chicken, instead of growing properly, it's wasting its time and energy uh, uh, on, on, on uh, trying to remove all these pests instead of using that energy for growth of its meat. So. That's one thing I would like to tell people. And as long as you do things properly, don't keep give your give your chickens. We could talk about nutrition again, which is something you should watch out for. The poults need feed that has high protein in it. And again, if we had a whole class, we'd be going into the details. Because the bones, the muscles are growing. You need more protein. But as it grows to four, four weeks, you start bringing down your 22% protein to 19, maybe later on 16. Now, if you want your hands to be laying, again, they need high protein to make the eggs. Again, you got to give them a different feed from the ones that are doing meat. And the ones that are you're, you're hoping to keep for meat, again, to finish them off, you might have to raise your starch side of things. Uh, and even the, the, the protein as well. So proper nutrition is key, not just quantity, but quality. That's one. Proper management. 
do not let your chickens or whatever, any poultry or any animals that are in confinement be walking around in their own droppings and what have you. Clean up. Just be hygienic and sanitary. Even if not sanitized, sanitary at least. Every so often I'll go to the coop and remove the shavings there because they have absorbed enough of the droppings from the chickens. You don't want to start getting the ammonia and methane starting to pollute the environment. That's not good for chickens. We also tell people change water every day. When they dip their beaks into that water, they're introducing some food in there and it becomes not the best type of water. They don't drink as, as, as enough as they would want to if the water is mucky and starting to smell and looking bad. So change water every day. I'm talking about management here, folks. So we need to be on top of things. Just be as nice to them as you would be to your kids. And then if you notice any infectious disease or parasites and pests, take some action. Don't wait. Don't wait. James, can you feed turkeys table scraps? Yes, you can. Okay. Hell yes. Well, not yes. only table scraps, but that can be yeah, part of the diet. Yeah, um, kitchen waste. Huh? Kitchen waste. Yeah. Kitchen waste. Kitchen waste. You have some leftover vegetables and what have you. So the leaves of cabbages, for instance, we cut them every morning. We only have five chickens, so we just cut them into biteable or easily um, pickable stuff. And um, the, the cooked food, yeah, that one, you, you have some leftover rice, we just throw it in there. You know, even meat, sometimes when you cut the fat of meat, we give them that too. Why not? So, yeah, those table scraps are great. The fruits, anything that, uh, the apples, if some of us peel it, then that we cut into pieces so that they're able to swallow that. Sure, you can give them that. You can give them that. Oh, yeah, there was a question about raising the turkey with other animals. It's a phenomenon we call commingling. It's awesome. Especially because if you raise them with llamas, let's say, llamas will be, will be a good uh, uh, choice of companion animal because the foxes, they can be confronted by a llama. The donk, a donkey, a burro. People always have a burro, B-U-R-R-O-F-R-O, or a donkey, it's like, a, it's like a donkey. It's it's great when it comes to keeping off wild dogs. And so the chickens will be protected. So that commingling element is great. And there was concern about chicken droppings. Uh, affecting sheep or other animals. In Southeast Asia and also I know in some other countries, people actually collect chicken poop to feed to um, uh, livestock. Why? Because that chicken dropping has lots of urea, which uh, urea has protein in it. So it doesn't it doesn't have any uh, harm. There is no harm in feeding if they ever pick it up, the sheep, if they ever pick it up. 
there are no zoonotic diseases or no diseases that go between sheep and and chickens so to speak or poultry that I know of so it's perfectly safe in fact it's even safer because the predators would be predators are kind of distracted or kept at bay by these other animals and they're not competing for feed the chickens are out there they're not eating that much grass they are after the insects that are in there if they can grab a worm while they're still out there you know and, and the occasional leaf blade of grass and that's not a, they don't eat a whole lot although if you let a flock of chickens loose on a on your lawn they'll graze it to the ground so the idea is to keep them moving around what we could for pasture management or for for the lawn because again you don't want the lawn eaten to the ground because the roots are now not getting any nutrients that's something that's another topic that can be discussed in a whole hour so james we have some questions um, that we've received and this first question is from knox county so this grower wants to graze their chickens in their growing beds this winter and early spring. When do they need to remove their chickens to plant spring transplants in April? And do they need to be concerned about um, any manure or anything that these birds might leave behind? What's the best extension answer? It depends. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> That's right. First of all, let's say that's a good thing to do. So in the winter, they are not growing anything. Bring the chickens in there. Any vegetation that is there, they will graze on it. So they are kind of benefiting from that because the eggs out of that or the, the, or the meat that is developing in the chickens or the turkey will be much better. They're eating uh, plant material which has vitamins and all those good things. So that's a good thing. And then their droppings will be fertilizer on the ground so there is that element of benefit for the next growing season now in FISMA FISMA is the Food Safety Modernization Act the rules and regulations for produce safety say if you're going to apply fresh or raw manure now if you plant a crop that is can be affected by pathogens or disease-causing organisms from that manure, then you will want to wait 90 days for crops where we are eating above-ground items. So if we're eating the stem or the fruit or the leaves, you want to wait 90 days before you harvest. Are you with me on that one? If you're going to grow root, root crops, carrots or beets or whatever those root crops radishes then you have to wait 120 days which is what four months so that's a guideline from produce safety uh, as far as FISMA food safety modernization act goes so now here comes the it depends situation you can actually remove them the same day you're planting if you know that your tomatoes you're not going to be harvesting until three months. Hey, just you can wait, right? If you're going to grow beets that within two, three weeks or four weeks, you start be pulling them out to eat, then you want to remove your chickens way earlier. Okay, 
But if it's something you're going to plan, if you're going to plan, like what takes forever, I don't know what takes forever, but if you're going to have like tomatoes, which especially you're going to trellis anyway, they will be up here. And the contact with the ground is even way less now. And your tomatoes anyway, you do them in April, May, June, maybe July is when you're starting to harvest or somewhere there. Then you're good. 90 days for above ground edible uh, parts and then 120 days for root crops. So if you don't have that much time to wait, then you have to remove your chickens sooner than April, maybe in January or February, something like that. And that's, that's my answer for, for that question. All right, so our next, county, our, our next question comes from Warren County. Um, these people have a small backyard in town, and they want to know how much room do they need for chickens. First of all, I do hope that their zoning laws allow them to keep chickens right here in Kankakee okay there are three towns three cities here in, in Kankakee there's, there's the Kankakee city it allows both chickens and bees honeybees and then you just go next door to Bradley they are complaining a whole lot right now because the zoning laws are different and so so is with Bobonet which is the other township so first of all make sure that your zoning laws allow you to keep the any type of poultry or any type of backyard animal and I still haven't understood how, why we can keep dogs and cats without having any laws but we can't keep chickens but that's a personal opinion so anyway how much room we said three square feet or four square feet depending again on the size of the bird if you're keeping the smaller one you might go with three square feet if you're keeping the huge thing go with three square feet so if you have enough room I mean, just calculate. If you want to keep five of them, uh, you either have 15 square feet or 20 square feet total, so that each bird has enough space. Now, remember that you're feeding trough, you're watering what uh, a container may take some of that room. Keep that into account. So that's that's my recommendation. James, I was always told never to keep a ch like one single chicken because they kind of need companions. Is that true? Chris, I know you don't live alone. <laughs> animals, animals have feelings too. Seriously, um, when it is alone, it's it's lonely. It gets stressed, and even you and I, when we get stressed we succumb to any infection and disease so easily. So, yes, it's always good to keep two. And we always go with two with everything. Even a honeybee colony, just don't keep one, have two. If it's a goat, keep another one. Because they all, animals have feelings. Let's just talk about it that way. Including the chickens and the poultry, any type of poultry, just have two because if you cannot be their companion, because you know what, if you have a dog, you are its companion. If you have a cat, it knows that you, you two are companions. So, yeah, always have to. Now, I visited a, I visited a friend who has a macaw, that parrot-like, whatever. It was only alone, and I said, shouldn't he have a mate? 
He said, I bring one in there and you kill it. They are highly territorial. They are just too territorial. And so the option there would be it's in its own cage and the other one is in its own cage but right next to each other, not in the same cage, you know. Uh, so even a female, it's going to fight it. To, it won't to, it want it out of there because its own territory has been there for so many years. So yeah, two is always better than one, always. That that makes sense. It's a shame that they're so delicious, though, because you know I do care about their feelings, but <laughs> they are tasty. <laughs> so James, we you had mentioned about commingling livestock, you know, so in, in one situation here in Fulton County, they're talking about they have cows, chickens, and they rotate those daily. They're introducing, they want to introduce sheep. And you said that's probably, that's, you don't see an issue there. Um, is there ever an instance, as you mentioned, kind of with that macaw, two livestock animals we don't want to commingle? Um, no, not that I know of. Every year in the last weekend of January, I have a sheep and goat workshop, and I would like whoever asked that question, I wish I would come over and now let you know about this, the next one, Chris, so you can let them know. Because one of the topics we cover there, and we could cover it again there, is one of commingling. And uh, um, the sheep and goats and cows all eat differently and we've always thought that if you let the sheep and goats go ahead of the cattle and the, uh, and the cattle follow they all have enough to eat that said i've seen many a situation where you had the sheep and the goats and the chickens all in one flock in one flock just moving along in the same paddock before they are released to the next paddock. Because when you do intensive grazing management or when you do proper pasture management, you don't want to release them in the entire field. You want to move from site to site so that they eat here properly, not too much, but eat properly, then go to the next. When you have them open in an entire field, they take a bite here, they take a bite there, they take a bite there. That's not good for the pasture. So. They can be in the same uh, uh, pasture throughout, all of them, and they'll just get along just fine. Well, perfect. Well, that was a lot of wonderful information about turkeys and livestock, and that was uh, a wonderful. Thank you very much, James Theory, for being on the Good Growing Podcast today. Thank you for having me. I appreciate that. The Good Growing Podcast is produced by Winnie Ferguson, and it is edited by me, Chris Enroth. Our hosts here every single week, we have Katie Parker and Ken Johnson. Katie and Ken, thank you very much for being on the show today. Not a problem. And thank you, James, for all your information. Thank you, too. Yes, thank you, James. Thank you. Thank you, Ken. Katie. Mm -hmm. Are we doing this next week? Oh, boy, I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know what's happening next week, but we will do something, I'm sure. Uh, You know, with the holidays and everything, folks, uh, we do have our schedule show planned out. um, But you know what? At this point in time, I am not sure what we're up to, um, because I think we're releasing this episode towards Thanksgiving. So we have a little bit of a week delay here. So 
Um, but I want to thank our listeners for doing what you do best, and that is, of course, listening. And as always, folks, you keep on growing. 